0: Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, the Crown Plaza Hotel, Grand Hall, and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the law firm of Bowes, McKinney, and Evans, and the Bowes Public Affairs Group, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. You can find all your sales and rental equipment needs at McAllister.com. We are pleased to announce our podcast is now a member of the All Indiana Podcast Network in partnership with Wish TV. You can find Leaders and Legends at allindianapodcastnetwork.com. Thank you for joining us on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest today is John Wertheim. You may not have heard of him, but you absolutely, if you're a sports fan, you have benefited from his work. Uh, John is the executive editor of Sports Illustrated and A Hoosier Born and Bred. Thank you, John, for coming on the podcast.
1: Oh, my pleasure. Uh, Hoosier Born and
0: Bred should have come before any other, uh, any other, uh, you know, uh,
1: characterizations, but uh, good to be here.
0: Well, in our email exchanges, as we schedule the podcast, and you're very gracious to come on and give us some of your time, um, you wrote one of your emails, you ended it with yours and Hoosierdom. So what's it like to be in New York as a Hoosier? Um, yeah, it's it's a little different from how I grew
1: up. But, um, you know, I, I feel like there are people that leave their hometown. Not just, this isn't unique to Indiana, obviously. I mean, the people that, that run and get away from their hometown, and they try to reinvent themselves, and they never look back, and they count the days until they're liberated. And there are other people that uh, – you know, wish they could live where they grew up and circumstances don't allow it, but they have a lot of uh, nostalgia and a lot of fondness. And I'm, I'm in that second category. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's you know, it's, it's interesting, especially being a parent where, you know, my, my kids live in an apartment and my kids go to, uh, you know, these, these schools that don't have a blade of grass on them and neither of them have their <laughs> licenses and they have no interest in driving. I mean, it's very striking to me how different my childhood was for my kids. But um, I, I really have a lot of uh, a lot of warm feelings for where I grew up.
0: John was born in Bloomington. And do you have an, an early memory, let's say, not only of the town, but of Indiana University? Oh, man. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I was born in I think
1: I was born in Methodist Hospital, but I, um, but I lived in Bloomington and grew up, you know, Graduated from Bloomington North and spent my first, um, you know, 18 years in, in Monroe County. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it was sort of, I was a little young, but, um, you know, I was, I was a kid when Breaking Away came out. And I was in fourth grade when, when Indiana won the, um, the NCAA title. And I was in, you know, in high school when they won again in 87 with Keith Smart and Bob Knight. Coach the 84 Olympic team that, that I've, I've written a lot about where, you know, Michael Jordan and Charles Barkley and all these guys came to Bloomington and you had Larry Bird and Michael, I mean, it just, it really was this sort of red hot center and whether they're making Hollywood movies and they're making, you know, Hoosiers was shot. I think when I was a freshman in high school um, you didn't really know it at the time, cause you didn't know better, but it was really sort of this, this golden age, especially with sports. And um, you know, I, I think it, probably stands to reason that's how I ended up in sports it it didn't seem all that remarkable at the time probably because there was nothing to compare to but man a lot was going on um from say you know 79 to 89 when I graduated high school um Indiana was really this the sports capital and um you know I think
0: it's probably no you
1: know it's no no surprise I ended up in sports
0: Uh, the very first TV I watched when I got out of basic training in 1987 was the IU-UNLV semifinal in 1987 uh, when yeah, IU dang. beat UNLV. Do you remember the, like maybe maybe a little bit too young for the Mark Spitz era, obviously, but but how big IU was the basketball in that area, that 76, 75, 76 team all the way through Isaiah in 81, and 81 at kind of your formative years, and did you think reading about these teams and the soccer team as well was winning national championships. Um, man, you know what? I wouldn't mind writing about sports for a living.
1: Yeah, exactly. And, um, I mean, you know, it's funny, you mentioned that UNLV game and I, I remember that, uh, you know, I can, I can go play by play on that, that game. That was actually to me that was the better game than yes. Keith smart beating Syracuse. Um,
0: absolutely. But,
1: um, yeah, it was, yeah, again, I don't think we realized it at the time, but you had, you know, I'm mean, sort of I, IU Basketball Assembly Hall was sort of the equivalent of uh, of Cameron or of college football game day. And you're right, you had IU winning NCAA, you Jerry Gagley and IU winning NCAA soccer championships and the Pan Am Games were in Indianapolis and there was a tennis tournament and there was an NBA All-Star game. And, I mean, again, the, the 84 Olympic trials were really uh, – I have a a book coming out next year about the summer of 84. And a lot of it is about these Olympic trials where just everybody came from all over and they came to Bloomington and Jordan and then Barkley and, you know, Patrick Ewing, they were all there. And it just, it really, you know, looking back, it was remarkable. I mean, here, here's a state in the middle of the country and it really was this sports capital. And, um, you know, it, it took some detachments and it took some some down seasons for Indiana basketball for uh that really to um to sort of hit home. But it was really sort of this this golden age of uh of, of sports in the Midwest and it was all happening with within an hour radius of where I lived.
0: Did you ever have a chance to meet or interview Coach Knight?
1: Oh yeah. I mean it's it's a long and
0: uh, <laughs> I was gonna uh, say I, he, he I rooted, has a uh, uh, he has a great history yeah. with uh, Sports Illustrated over the years, including Mr. Curry Kirkpatrick.
1: Oh, man. Good, good, uh, good memory. No, I, you know, I, I grew up with Pat Knight. I mean, you know, Pat, Pat Knight was.
0: Yeah. You're in the same class or close because he up, went to Bloomington North. Yeah. Yeah.
1: No, well, I mean, we were in the same, you know, first grade class through senior year and uh, we stayed in, stayed in contact. I did a piece with, um. I, th- I think it's one of the few times that coach Knight actually broke his, uh, his sports illustrated band. I did a, one of my first pieces for sports illustrated was on Pat when he was coaching in the CBA um, mm-hmm. in, the, in the continental basketball association in the late nineties. And um, yeah, I, I actually, I wrote a long piece a couple of years ago for, for Indianapolis monthly about Knight. And it was a little bit first exp- I mean, it was a little bit first person in my experience, but just, I mean, to me, it's sort of one of these great tragedies that, um, you know, pe- people don't realize this guy, this guy had three NCAA titles when he was in his mid 40s. He was the coach of the U.S. Olympic team. He, every summer, he turned down NBA jobs. I mean, this guy was really on John Wooden trajectory. I mean, he he should have been Coach K, and you know, he essentially sort of couldn't couldn't get out of his own way and had surrounded himself with um, you know people that seemed uh, to. En- enable some, some bad habits. And it it's, it was really a great tragedy of my life. I mean, use the word, um, guardedly, but you know, I, it was a real tragedy to sort of see kids. know Bob Knight is the crazy guy who threw the chair and who got mad on live TV on ESPN. And they don't realize that, you know, in, in 1987, he was on this John Wooden trajectory. And if you, if you'd said in 1987 that Bob Knight's never going to win an NCAA title, I think he only went to one final four after that he'd end up in Texas and he'd sort of be known as this, this crazy guy who didn't want anything to do with IU who like life had passed him by and he would become this kind of meme. Um, people wouldn't have believed you. They'd say, no, 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 this, this guy's going to go down as as Dean Smith and coach K and John Wooden as one of the all-time great coaches. Um, it was really sort of almost biblical to me how, uh, he he had declined after being you know I mean people know at the time this, this guy could have run for governor and won in a landslide <laughs> and to see him go from that to uh, you know what what the story became was really was really quite sad in my eyes.
0: You mentioned the Coach K trajectory and would it be fair to say that very few coaches or programs have had worst injury worse injury luck with top teams than IU had both in '75 with Scott May and his uh, broken arm and Alan Henderson's knee injury in 93, when they were the number one ranked team in the country and in, in both occasions, actually, I mean, he had two of his best teams robbed because of sort of freak injuries at the end of the season. We, we
1: say that during a week, uh, you know, when, when an IU quarterback uh, suffers a, a, a knee injury during the you know best football season of IU football as well. Um, yeah, you're right. I mean, the, the Scott May predated me i mean I, I was whatever four four years old um with scott may but you go back and you talk to people and they the of all of team, even the undefeated team in 76 they say that that 75 team was the, the best team they ever had and uh yeah it's some some bet some bad injury luck there no uh no question about it
0: let's let's please bring up 1984 you mentioned the olympic trials it's always fun to read about uh, i actually had uh, was lucky enough I was again in the military was sitting in the airport in Indianapolis waiting to be picked up by a friend of mine and I'm reading a season on the brink for like the 38th time. Right. It just read it continuously and I look up and walking this, this, this is, this is how antediluvian society was back then looking up five feet in front of me is Michael Jordan. And I looked at him and I go, I just got done reading about you. And he goes, looked at me and he kind of like, what are you reading? I showed him the book and he, he smiled and he goes, I have it and haven't read it. What am I in? And I said, the Olympic trials. And he, he laughed and it just kind of moved on gave me a thumbs up or something like that. But the epic talent of that 84 team that made the team is almost matched by the number of folks who did not make the team. Charles Barkley being maybe the most prominent what are your memories of 1984 and that summer and that Olympic team and how it entered in to the American basketball pantheon before the pros got to play?
1: Um, yeah. I mean, I, I love what you said uh, with, with your anecdote as well, cause I think that's part of it. So yeah, I mean, you had all these guys and picture this, you have all these players, the, pro, the pros aren't in the Olympics, so it's just college kids. And this, this predates the dream team. Um, in 92, but you had all these college kids, they all come to Bloomington. They don't have agents. They're not getting paid. They're all sort of, you know, kids in baggy clothes with duffel bags. And I remember J- Joe Klein, who actually made the team said, you mm-hmm. you know, no, no one thought it was weird, but you'd go to the Indianapolis airport and everybody you'd sit on the bus and there'd be Patrick Ewing and Wayman Tisville and Carl Malone and John Stockton. They were all on the bus taking them to Bloomington. And it was two people to a seat and they didn't even practice at uh, Assembly Hall initially. They played at the uh, at the IU uh, at the Fieldhouse, which is, you know, decidedly less glamorous. And you're right. I mean, the players that didn't make the team were, you know, Carl Malone and John Stockton and Joe Dumars and, and Barkley. Barkley was obviously the big one. Barkley didn't make the team because essentially uh, – Knight thought he was A, too fat, and B, had too much attitude. Um, and
0: <laughs> and Barkley had, had said, forgive me, forgive me and correct me if my memory's failing yeah. me, but I've read articles where Barkley goes, I should have made the team. And I've read articles where he said, man, I just went there to audition for the pros. So he seemed kind of nonchalant about it. Is that, is that right or am I wrong?
1: No, you're right. Barkley came, came out of school a year early at the last minute, and the, uh, you're absolutely right. And the way Barkley tells it, he said, "You know, I, I just wanted to get like solidify my draft place." And he played really well. And he was this, you know, six foot four inch, two hundred eighty-five pound forward. But he also would would run up and down the floor and dunk. And apparently, he was very You know, Knight would wear, uh, co- co- you know, Coach Knight would wear uh, a funny pair of shoes. And Barkley, they would all be sitting around. And Barkley would. Start making fun of Knight's shoes who was clearly <laughs> was not not accustomed to this um and then everybody would giggle and Knight would say you know the, the quote I always lose there's, there's only one goddamn general in this army and it sure isn't you fat boy <laughs> um, <laughs> so uh it was a great uh it was a great culture clash and you know Knight was the coach but at the same time it wasn't controlling your scholarship or your your salary so it was sort of a a strange situation where it was one of the few times where Knight didn't have control over a player. But uh, I mean, I, I like what you said too because you know it was this incredible collection of talent. I mean, to me, that one of the great parts of the story is everybody came to where Coach Knight was, and so guys were, you know, taking multiple planes from Spokane, Washington, if you were Stockton, or from the middle of Louisiana for Carl Malone. They all came to Bloomington. They all auditioned, and. It was at a time where you know everyone knew who these guys were. I mean, everyone knew Michael Jordan. Everyone knew Patrick Ewing, but sports hadn't quite gotten to this place. The, the money hadn't mm-hmm. been there. The media exposure hadn't been there. So everyone has a story like yours. So guy, you know, Michael Jordan was walking. They, all the players were staying at the IU Union, and somebody, you know, some high school, Owen Valley High School, is having their prom. So <laughs> Michael Jordan <laughs> walks in and starts doing the moonwalk with the Owen Valley High School prom. Or, you know, Patrick Ewing thought he was getting picked up after watching Karate Kid at the College Mall Cinema, but the ride didn't come. So he basically hitched a ride with some, some guy from Bloomington's driving Patrick Ewing back to the dorm. So it was this sort of mix of everyone knew these were so – n- nobody said who's Patrick Ewing, but I mean, everyone knew who these guys were. But we hadn't reached a point in our culture where sports was so elevated – That, you know, there weren't security guards and there weren't publicists and there weren't agents. And I remember I was in Bloomington that summer and you'd see, you know, Michael Jordan would show up with a tennis racket and go to the IU courts or you'd run into these guys walking around the square in Bloomington. They were sort of bored kids and you didn't have this membrane. It's like you in the Indianapolis airport, right? I mean, Michael Jordan probably hasn't been to an airport in 20 years. Um, You didn't have this kind of membrane dividing celebrities and athletes from from their fans so it was this nice mix of like these these guys were you know these, these guys were stars everyone knew them but they also were walking through the mall like like you and I were uh so it was really um, uh, you know that's obviously we sound we old and we found like uh you know I, I realize you know you sound like I sound like grandpa on the porch here but that <laughs> could never happen today obviously I mean the, the idea that LeBron James would show up in a college town and just uh you know, eat, eat ice cream by himself and talk about John Feinstein's book is, uh, you know, co- co- comical to think about. Uh,
0: one of my favorite stories from the 84 team, uh, which I've heard repeated a few times, so I'm, I'm, I'm going to just assume it's veracity. And that is the story of maybe they were playing golf or maybe they were just hanging out in a room. I can't remember. Where Michael Jordan tells Steve Alford, no way you last four years with Knight." And they bet like a (laughs) hundred bucks and I've heard Alford tell the story and say, yeah, he still hasn't paid me. And what was your impression? What are your impressions of how those players reacted to Knight, who I am assuming was completely different, even though I don't know, Patrick Union played for John Thompson and John Thompson was pretty intimidating, which is maybe one of the reasons why Knight and Thompson were such good friends, but just, just, Knight's presence and demeanor and actions and methods—how that imprinted itself on that team.
1: Um, I, you know, again, I'm, I'm, I'm cheating here because i have I've just, you know, I've written uh, a book that deals with this. So I've, I've talked to a bunch of the guys about it, and the other coaches too. And the answer is, it totally, totally varies. In that some players, Way- Wayman Tisdale, for example, former, uh, former Pacer, great. Mm-hmm. Um, we, you know, lo- lovely guy. Uh, you know, no one had a, a bad word to say about Wayman Tisdale. He's no longer with us. And he apparently, you know, night would make him cry. I mean, he, he literally he, he couldn't deal. He, he had a great quote where he said, you know, after the Olympics, I'm going back to Oklahoma and I'm going to give a hug to even the meanest person I knew there because I know he's really not that mean. <laughs> that Knight just shattered this guy. And, you know, of course, Knight, this is what a bully does. But, you know, he would. He knew Wayman Tisdale was sensitive, so it only made it worse. So there were stories where he would stop a practice once and he would draw an X in the middle of the court. And he said, I would just want to mark the spot. This is where I first saw Wayman Tisdale hustle. And he would really sort of uh, abuse that guy. And I think other players just sort of rolled their eyes and said, boy, I'm glad. glad I didn't spend four years here. And the one guy that loved it, I mean, I think Alford knew what the deal was. And the the truth is, I mean, the sort of the dirty secret is one of the perks of taking the job for uh, for Coach Knight was that he got to he got to pick one player, which was Steve Alford. Mm -hmm. So it was sort of an unwritten agreement that Alford was going to make the team. Um, But one player who completely took tonight and got him and really connected with him was Michael Jordan and Jordan has a lot of quotes, you know, oh, I'm glad I never played for him or, you know, beat Dean Smith taught me the four quarter offense and Bob Knight taught me the four letter word. But the truth is Jordan, Jordan and Knight had a lot of, a lot of connection. And they really both understood that this driven personality and we saw in the last dance, Jordan could be kind of a bully and Jordan would find a soft teammate, like, you know, like, like uh, Scott Burrell and he would ride him. Well, that's, that's classic Knight. So, it's funny because some players couldn't stand night. Some players sort of rolled their eyes and said, man, this, this guy doesn't do it like my coach. Um, but one player who really took to him was, was Michael Jordan. They really spoke the same language.
0: Just so maniacally competitive and and do anything to win. You know, There was a sign, I think, that was in the IU locker room. Everyone has the will to win, but not everyone has the will to prepare to win. And it seems that yeah. Jordan had that. Yeah. More than anyone else. The other great the other great Jordan story that I, I want to ask you about that's not necessarily related to the Olympic team, but it happens right afterwards, I believe. And that's when the draft comes in 84, and Houston has the first pick. They're going to choose uh, Hakeem Olajuwon. Everyone pretty much knew that. But Portland had the second pick, and they decided to choose Sam Bowie over Michael Jordan. I think mostly they had Clyde Drexler, so they had a kind of dynamic wing player. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. but Knight had a conversation, I forget with whom, but someone who was a good friend with of his on the Trailblazers, and, and Knight's like, you got to take Jordan, and the Portland guy says, well, we need a center. And Knight's reply was, we'll play Jordan at center. Like, you don't have any idea yeah. how good this kid is. <laughs> Did you also get the um, sense, we talked about Jordan and Knight, but changing the relationship a little bit, that Knight quickly realized... This kid is just simply better.
1: Um, the summer of 84, before Michael Jordan has played a single NBA game, Knight basically says this is the best basketball player I've ever seen. This guy's going to be one of the best ever. You've never seen, I, I mean, the, the quotes from that summer, are, and this is not, you know, this is not someone who's given to uh, flowery praise. Um, to his credit, Bob Knight knew this guy was was special. Yeah, I mean, he told, the, yeah, right. That's a blazing story I love. The other thing is sometimes, I mean, again, he and Jordan just they got each other. Sometimes he would say to Jordan, like, basically, I'm going to scream at you. Just take it. If he wanted to show the rest of the team that Jordan wasn't above, you know, what wasn't above condemnation, but then Jordan would get him back later. And uh, it, it really was an. Uh, um, you, you sort of look at the qualities we use to describe Jordan, and it's take no prisoners, and it's outwork everyone, and it's what you said, maniacally competitive. Those match up awfully well with, uh, with, with Coach Knight. Um, and you're right. I mean, that's a funny – yeah, I'll tell you another funny thing is that Knight, Knight didn't want any of the players going to New York for the NBA draft. Uh, so Michael Jordan gets drafted, and he's in Bloomington. And basically, George Raveling drives him to a local TV station. They put a piece of plastic in his ear. He says "Yeah, the Chicago media, you know, I'm excited to be here. I'm excited to help build something goes to McDonald's, and then he goes back to practice. So uh, it was not a, uh, not, not a big draft night party for, uh, for Michael Jordan in, uh, in, the, in the summer of 84.
0: And, and two other things where we move on. We should note, in, talking about 1984, just a few months before the Olympic trials, IU, with Alford as a freshman, ended Michael Jordan's career in the regional semifinals in the NCAA tournament, and one of the great upsets of all time. I remember watching <laughs> that game live, as I'm sure you do as well. <laughs> Um, just no way North Carolina had four number one draft picks on that team. And the only IU player taken in the first round was Uwe blop and IU, <laughs> IU won. So that's a B when Jordan had his number retired by the Chicago bulls, there were two people on the podium, two coaches who talked. Dean Smith was one and Bob Knight was the other. I didn't know that.
1: Oh, that's a good, uh, that's a. I I mean, that night that summer would always, Oh, uh, you know, I'm going to have to, Bring out Dan Dockage to stop you, Michael. I mean that night would, would Lord that defeat over Jordan. I mean, Those last college game Michael Jordan never played. You're right, was a uh, loss to IU. I, I didn't realize that. Uh, that's a good that's a good poll. I didn't know that that um, Bob, Bob Knight was at that that Chicago Bulls ceremony. But um, yeah, I mean there there was a lot of um, again. I, I don't think too many people say Dean Smith and, and Bob Knight are uh you, you know, it's very two very different. Approaches to the job, but um, they, they both really seem to connect with Jordan.
0: You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, the Crown Plaza Hotel, Grand Hall, and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the law firm of Bose, McKinney, and Evans, and the Bose Public Affairs Group, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Our guest today is John Wertheim, executive editor of Sports Illustrated, and a man who grew up in the friendly confines of probably one of the most beautiful towns and campuses in the country, and that is Bloomington and Indiana University. John, let me ask you another quick question before we move on, because I want to talk about how you went from Bloomington, Indiana, to New Haven, Connecticut, to attend Yale. But is there a particular Hoosier leader or legend you admire? Particular?
1: Um, that's a good question. I mean, so- someone who was very instrumental to me was, was Bob Hamill, who was, um, you know, sort of the, uh, the John Wooden of, of sports writing, who was the, the columnist at the local paper, who I've had the good fortune of, of getting to know a bit, who was just thoroughly decent and hardworking and really uh someone who opened my eyes to what you could do uh putting words to sports um i mean you know more broadly i just indiana fascinates me as a state and i would i don't know how you would ever quantify this but from you know wendell wilkie to mike pence to mayor pete i mean i would maintain john roberts i mean i would i would uh I would submit that there is a wildly disproportionate impact uh, that, that Indiana has had on this country compared to other States. Um, Again, whether it's uh, innovation or sports or politics, or you're two of the nine Supreme court justices
0: right now. um, David Lee Ross, John Cougar. Yeah.
1: Right. Michael Jackson. Yeah. I mean, you could play. And again, I mean, this, this is not a state that, um, you know, even now, I tell people I'm from Indiana and they say, you know, is that the one with Des Moines? I mean, it's still (laughs) sort of I I think on the the coast, there's still a bit of obscurity and and people know it. It's for cliched reviews for the Indy 500 or maybe for Bellencamp. But I would I I, I will always submit that Indiana has a wildly
0: outsized impact on this country and this culture than uh, people might otherwise think. Orville Redenbacher has a huge impact on in the United States for his own reasons I'm glad to know yeah, that you exactly. you know uh, Bob Hamill we've tried to get him on the podcast and now I know that uh, I can drop your name for my latest <laughs> I am definitely going to do that lovely man you went to Yale why Yale why not IU and, and how did that how did that happen for you because it's obviously one of the most prestigious universities in the world Um
1: yeah i I don't know I um I, you know, you're eighteen years old and I had again my my folks both worked at IU for many many years and I took some classes there over the summer and the campus was kind of my playground and I just you know it was sort of time to to get away. I thought it would be really weird to go to college somewhere that I knew inside and out like that there wouldn't be any kind of surprises or mystery or mystique um, so I wanted to you know, go, go beyond Indiana and, and get out and sort of just, again, it was a, it was a different, different time period. It's probably a lot easier to get into college then than it is now and ended up, uh, you know, yeah, it ended up going to school in, in Connecticut. Um, but again, one of those, one of those people, you know, even go. I'd love to come back in the summers and I came, I, I wasn't one of these people who, you know, get, get me out of here and I never look back.
0: Um, you know in Indiana was was always kind of pretty close to whatever i was doing did you get a sense though you mentioned the movie a few minutes ago uh, the movie Hoosiers uh, that that really shaped some people's perception of especially sports fans i mean Hoosiers is universally regarded as one of the greatest sports movies of all time and is and is mentioned by basketball players from all over the country right you don't have to be from indiana as something that they really enjoy do you think that that had an impact maybe reinforcing some stereotypes and busting others?
1: Um, that's a good question. Yeah. I mean, it's always funny to me what people think of as Indiana and what they don't. So for example, one thing I remember, I mean, no, no one ever really thinks about Notre Dame in the context of Indiana. Right. Um, people are always surprised to, you know, whatever. You, even to some extent, like you know David Letterman, or for I mean, if people have this idea of Indiana. It's always interesting to me what sticks and what doesn't. And then, yeah, I mean, guys shooting small town, you know, bandbox, you know, bar, barn basketball, mm-hmm. and uh you know, bunch bunch of hustling kids on the picket fence, and uh, I mean, again, spending so much time in sports, Hoosiers was going to resonate more than. Axel Rose and David Lee Ross and <laughs> Mellencamp and Michael Jackson. But um, yeah, I, I do think Hoosiers, you know, for, for better or worse, um, sort of, uh, I, I don't, don't quote me on this, but I think that the same night the Academy Awards were being held, the year Hoosiers right. was nominated. It didn't win, but I think it, it was the same night Indiana beat Syracuse. That's right. And someone was saying that like, I'm, I turned to one channel and there's like, you know, Steve Alford and it's, feathered hair moving off the pick and hitting a jump shot and there's jimmy chitwood and you sort of we get it already you know (laughs) indiana guys know how to shoot um
0: Uh, uh, but let me ask you a question about about that being on the east coast forgive me um we haven't talked about the pazers much but were you in new york on the east coast when reggie miller was lighting up spike lee and (laughs) that give you did that give you a sense of pride
1: um yeah, absolutely. No, the the answer is yes and yes. Um, and I can't remember where I was. I, I think I was still, I think I was in law school. But um, yeah, I mean, that, that had a lot of it too, right? It was kind of this, uh, was, it was Spike Lee and this, and then you had, um, you know, it was Slick Leonard and, and Boom Baby. I can't remember the, the headline in the New York Post was something the Something against the Hicks, <laughs> and you know Indiana had to be real. Reggie was Reggie, but then you, you had Rick Smiths, and you had. Uh, I, I just I, I remember for some reason uh, Slick Leonard figuring very prominently in that whole. Um, you know, it was really a trilogy. I mean, it was really 94... ninety four, ninety four, ninety five, ninety six. Is that right? It basically, it was. Uh, it was three state straight playoff series, wasn't it? And but then um, the, yeah, I mean the, the the Reggie game. I mean the, the whatever the the eleven points and. I don't remind me it was nine, nine points and seven seconds or whatever.
0: Basically. Yeah. Um, Eight points and nine yeah. seconds. Did it? Um, yeah. Did you bring that when you, when New York and, and, you know, the Colts were kind of down and the Pacers were kind of down, but IU was, you know, probably playing in Madison square garden. I think they won the big Apple NIT preseason NIT once there, but Indiana's sports history in the, in the, the sports figures, they, have we have produced the state has produced can stand up with anyone and has that been something that you've enjoyed covering I don't know if you've had a chance to talk to Larry Bird or had a chance to talk to Oscar Robertson and others of that level but we've produced our fair share of iconic sports figures
1: oh yeah absolutely and um, you know and and not just I I think the the Colts was sort of an interesting wrinkle in that that we you know we knew it was a basketball state we knew about wooden and larry bird and oscar robertson i mean it was always interesting to me how um we we knew less about I don't know, glenn robinson and zach randolph and greg odin i mean it, t- it took a bit of a, a turn even though indiana for still through the 2000s was still minting an awful lot of nba players um and you know, when when seems like when the when the Colts were down, the Pacers were up, and when the Pacers were down, the Colts were up, and you know, fo- football's a little different just because it's not quite as embedded in the fabric of the state. And we ever you know, we all love Peyton Manning, but he sort of had the the Tennessee thing going. So how much could Indiana claim him as their own? Um, but no, I mean, in, in Indiana sports, um, it's it's something that. Uh, you know, again, I'll, I'll add that to the uh, to, to the politics theme too. I mean, again, this is for a fairly fairly small state with only one significant city. The the impact of Indiana on sports, I, I would say, is awfully outsized.
0: You mentioned earlier, just a few minutes ago, about the 500. Have you had? I used to work at a hotel, the uh, Crown Plaza Airport, uh, and people would come in. This was 20 25 years ago when I was in college and they would come on race weekend and you check them in and the hotel of course would be full. And And I always enjoyed asking them, have you ever been to the 500 before? Like, is this, and they're like, no, we're just coming in. They're kind of like, yeah, we're just coming in for a corporate thing or a business thing and looking forward to it. And I was like, I'll be working Sunday night. I'd like to know your impressions or, you know, come and ch- tell me what you think. And 100% of the people would come back, you know, whenever, take their shower, get something to eat. And they'd come to the front desk at some point and look at me and they would be like. I had no idea that it was going to be that absolutely amazing with that many people. Have you had friends of yours and people you've met in New York city or in the East coast who either their only visit to Indianapolis was for the 500 or that they went to a race and came back with their eyes bulging, like, Oh my God, what an event.
1: Um, It's funny because, uh, you know, Bloomington's an hour from Indianapolis, but it's only, or maybe a hundred minutes from Louisville too. And I always think it's a, it's very similar to what people say about the Derby. So people, are, Oh, why would you ever want to go for a stupid three minute race? Or why would you want to go and watch people make, you know, 200 left turns and then people go. <laughs> and exactly. They're like, this is the greatest sporting. I had no idea. This is like going to the masters. And I got to, um, I, I think, uh, people that don't, you know, and I'm, I'm not the, I'm not the last of the auto racing fans, and I'm not a huge, um, I'm not a huge racing fan or a NASCAR fan um, or an IndyCar fan, but the, as a sporting event, it's terrific. Um, and I, yeah, I've probably been to the five. I, I didn't, you know, in retrospect, I wish I'd gone more often and I, I don't know what the ticket situation is now, but um, gr- growing up, it always, it always seemed like someone had a ticket or they were floating around or there was, you know, the Q95 giveaway. It didn't seem like that tough a ticket. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, I, I have I've had the same experience. People are skeptical, then they go and they're like, "Oh, this is unbelievable." So, uh, well, I think uh, you, ha- yeah. you have a,
0: you have a connection at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway now, uh, John, which I'm sure you could. Uh, I'm happy to help you leverage, and that's Mr. Mark Miles, who oh man, who is who's running that place and has for the mm-hmm. last few years. And, and he and his team, Allison Melangdon, Doug Bowles, everybody, they've turned that 500. It's it's an amazing event. It's had some great races but I think it was a couple of three years ago on maybe the 100th running or the 100th anniversary that, that one in every 1000 people in the country was at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Is that right? Had had more than oh, 300,000 people there for a race. Oh, that's wild.
1: Um, no, you know, Mark, uh, who's a, I'm a, you know, a big, big fan of his, um, it's, it's always bittersweet because Mar- Mark is terrific and a great guy. But uh, he used to he used to run tennis for many years, including when I started in tennis. And we we miss him. And every time I hear about success of the 500, uh, boy, I, I wish he uh, selfishly I wish he were still in uh, the sport I cover, week in week out. But no, that's that's great to hear. And Mark, you know, I'm sure everybody knows that they're lucky to have him.
0: Well, he's been a guest on the podcast a couple of times. He came on by himself. Uh, for those of you who know who I'm talking about, it's Mark Miles, who used to run the Association of Tennis Professionals, which is the men's worldwide tennis tour. His resume is phenomenal. Probably the the best leader I've ever met, uh, non-elected official, but but just. The Midas Touch, and he also came on with a few other folks to discuss how Indianapolis won the Super Bowl bid of a few years ago because he was chairman of that effort. Uh, John Wertheim is our guest on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Uh, I confess to him a a tennis addiction, watching and tennis and tennis history, and I, hopefully that's one of the reasons John came on. He's the preeminent uh, tennis writer in the world. If you're a tennis fan, you have to read his his musings and his columns, uh, especially around the bigger events, because he just does an absolutely terrific job. Um, why tennis? How did you get that beat? And, and talk a little bit about how much you enjoy it. And you certainly go to some of the best locations in the world.
1: Um, not this year, but, um, <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I, I always, I grew up, playing tennis. And then, you know, Lynn Loring, who is the IU women's coach for many, many years, sort of the, again, one of these John Wooden doc councilman type figures who was there for, for decades and very successful. He was really my, my first coach. I, I always loved the sport and Indianapolis, ironically enough, run by Mark miles used to have uh, an event every summer, um, right where the NCAA is, is now, right. Um, you know, just a few blocks, a few blocks west of downtown um, at IUPY. So, you know, you'd go up and you'd watch you know, Pete Sampras would play and you'd watch the the best players. And I got the sports illustrated and the, the great Frank DeFord, um, who was a real sort of after Bob Hamill, a real mentor of mine, um, sort of said, it, it's great that you want to be a generalist and it's, it's great. You want to write about a bunch of sports and be versatile, but you really ought to pick one. Um, just kind of sink your teeth into it doesn't have to come with the exclusion of anything else you, know, you can still do your basketball and your football and write your features but t- take one sport that you can really sink your teeth into and he suggested tennis and I, I said the same thing you did i said oh you know that sounds great you get to go to paris and you get to go to australia <laughs> and he said you know that's 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 part of it but the other part of it is sort of everyone's everyone's a little bit crazy and everyone is sort of in it for themselves and what I, I came to realize was that it's, it's not unlike what we were talking about with Michael Jordan in, in 1984. Um, all the players are, are, independent contractors. There's not really a, a league. They're not teams. And what that means is that everybody's pretty accessible and everybody gets to know everyone and there are no, there are no home games. So you sort of have this traveling circus. Um, and I think that the, the people in the tents, the people in the community sort of have this uh, you know, it's, it's, really has this kind of family atmosphere. So, you know, if you want to, you can't abuse the privilege, but you know, if you want to talk to Roger Federer, you get in touch with Roger Federer. Um, it's not like that covering Tom Brady or Peyton Manning or LeBron James or Tiger Woods. Um, so it's, it, it's a really fun sport for me to write about. They're, they're men, they're women, they're players of all ages. They're from all over the world They're different backgrounds. But it's also nice to actually, you know, I did a, a 60 Minutes piece on Rafael Nadal last year and went to Spain. And, you know, we've known each other for 15 years. And I wouldn't say we're, we're hangout buddies, but, you know, we know each other and say hi and show me around. the And people said, how did you get that rapport with him? And I sort of said, R- rapport? I've, I've known the guy for 15 years. And, you know, he talk to him and have meals with him and run into him at airports and you get to know someone. And I think tennis is really one of the last sports where that still happens. I mean, I think, you know, you hear these stories of guys that c- cover the Lakers for an entire season and LeBron James doesn't know their name or they, you know, you cover the Patriots for years and years and never once get an interview with Tom Brady and tennis um, is, is small enough so that that, that doesn't really happen. So um you know, I started tennis in the late nineties and kind of stuck with it. And it's really, you know, it's, it's not necessarily the bulk of what I do, but I I really enjoy it. I really like the people.
0: One thing that's happened in Indianapolis is the loss of the tennis tournament because the, the tournament in Cincinnati just got to be so big that, that it kind of just, I hate to say it killed the Indianapolis tennis tournament, but when it was thriving in the Good 70s, 80s, and 90s as it went from clay to hard court. It was, it won. I mean, Connors came here, Borg came here, Agassi came here, Sampras. I mean, all the top players, number one players. And in the Indianapolis tournament, one favorite tournament among the uh, men's tour. It was only a men's tournament at the end. It, It won favorite tournament for years in a row. Typical Indianapolis kicking it out of the park. That's
1: exactly right. I always said there's a real sort of metaphor there
0: that these players,
1: you know, and they're used to Monte Carlo and Tokyo and Sydney and all these fancy cities around the world. And, you know, they're on the Mediterranean and Paris and they come to Indiana and, you know, they're they're not beautiful beaches and they're not going to be 10 different five star restaurants, but everybody there bent over backwards to make the player's feel welcome and hospitable and they came up with film were go-karts and they were you know people would there be they'd go to uh i remember they they would have um be like jet skiing outings and they'd be tours of the speedway and it was real i mean it sounds like a cliche but it was real hoosier hospitality and at the end of the day these players are like you know what like you could i could take or leave monte carlo it's a beautiful view but i only look for a few minutes I'd much rather come to this great town in the middle of the country and have lovely people uh, treating me well and have you know genuine conversation. And you're right. These players, they came from all over the world and they fell in love with this tournament in the middle of summer in the middle of Indiana. And this always got these top awards over, you know, you'd look at the other, it was like Indianapolis won and then it would be like, you know, Stockholm, Palm Springs, you know, Monte Carlo and Paris would be the next four. And you'd say sort of which of these, which of these uh, doesn't belong, but Indiana was doing something right. And I would, I would submit there's a sort of a a deeper, deeper lesson to be learned there.
0: You mentioned you started covering tennis in the late nineties. You certainly got to cover tennis and continue to cover uh, tennis. Let's stay on the men's side for just one second, because Serena Williams has been so dominant for the last uh, decade plus on the on the women's tour I and mean, when she's healthy she wins most of the time but i want to ask you about about her in just a second but just speaking with the men's tour in the last 20 years you have covered on a consistent basis probably 10 of the top 20 players of all time for a journalist to be able to be in, pre- in the presence of such greatness and such achievement what does that do for you for your writing um, it, it's a great question because sometimes it's,
1: it's sometimes it's a challenge. I mean, if, you know, if think about, you know, Michael Jordan wins six titles in seven years and eight years. And by the time there are only so many ways you can talk about an amazing movie, or there are only so many ways that a writer, you can describe Roger Federer, gratefulness or Rafa Nadal's hustle. Um, but it also is really special. I mean, you, it used to be, you know, Andre Agassi great player. It's you know, John McEnroe, great players. You know, guys like that would just, win seven or eight major titles and they would be these legends and they'd be a no brainer hall of famers. Um, you know, you'd win, you'd win seven major titles and they'd be, you know, naming rackets after you and it's Mount Rushmore stuff. Well, now you've got three guys and, and Roger Federer has 20. Rafa Nadal has 20 and Novak Djokovic has 17. So you're you're talking about, you know, three guys that have won almost 60 among them. It's just extraordinary. And the fact that they're all three good guys, like genuinely good people, um, you don't feel like you're, you know, you you go back and you look at some of the the Tiger Woods coverage and people would say, you know, oh the, you know, everybody sort of knew there were these rough edges, but nobody wanted to rock the boat. I mean, there are not a lot of rough edges in tennis and you're, you're covering three Towering champions but the fact that they're also just genuinely good dudes um really helps it, it can be a bit challenging you know journalistically to just kind of come up with something new to say well because, i read your,
0: uh, I read your column, you know i read your column uh the most recent one uh, about nadal's destruction of djokovic in the 2020 french open he just it was you just sit there watching it, and you're like, "Is Djokovic? He's like like really one of the three or four greatest players of all time, right? <laughs> like I'm watching one of the greatest players of all time just get utterly spanked, and it's <laughs> so funny to read about Federer or Djokovic talking about Nadal, who's my favorite current player on the on the clay in Paris. And so your point about writing about it, at a certain point, you're like, I just don't know what else. How many more ways can I say magnificent? <laughs> exactly.
1: Uh, exactly. I got, uh, I got nothing left. Um, <laughs> no, it, it, I mean, the fact that, you know, jo- John McEnroe won zero titles after he turned, I mean, zero majors after he turned 25 years old. Yeah. I mean, P- Pete Sampras by his late 20s, great career, but, you know, the things were starting to, to fade. It, you know, the, the doll, it about 34 year olds roger is going to be 40 next year so it's it's the greatness but also the longevity
0: and they're doing and, it against um, each other i mean they're, they're all, right they're exactly all these, i mean you yeah. had stan Vavrinka win a few and um uh del potro i remember he he stopped federer's run of five consecutive u.s open titles and there's been a sprinkling here and there but i mean for year after year after year it was either in andy murray to a certain extent but it's Djokovic, Federer, or Nadal winning every single major almost every single year. And I think one of the things that's so impressive about it is, is it's not like they're padding their stats by playing the Washington Generals, right, the equivalent exactly. of tennis. I mean, Nadal has to beat <laughs> Federer, and Federer has to beat <laughs> right. Djokovic to win the title, and it's just amazing tennis.
1: Um, the, the sort of cloud over all this is like, man, what's it going to look like in a few years from now? but for the moment it's just extraordinary and it it's also nice that i think people are recognizing it too that some sometimes you know you, you have this in sports like what i was saying about indiana in the 80s i mean at some point oh we didn't know how good we had it and oh wish mm-hmm. we should have appreciated it more i i think most tennis fans recognize this is not not just generational this is really once in a lifetime stuff and that we're going to go back to you know one one major it's like golf right i mean one major it's him and the other major it's him and everyone's got a story and it's competitive, but you don't have three tigers.
0: And that's what, that's what tennis has right now. You mentioned uh, previous eras. Uh, I should mention to the uh, leaders and legends podcast audience that you also cover MMA as part of your beat and have written about it before. Uh, the, is it fair to say the the tennis equivalent of mixed martial arts, was Jimmy Connors against John McEnroe. And you talked earlier about how the the current male tennis stars are such good guys and they're very praiseworthy of each other and they help each other's charities and so on and so forth. Whereas I remember Dick Enberg, who has a PhD from the university, the late Dick Enberg, said that he was scared to invite Connors and McEnroe to play tennis on his home tennis court because they'd start fighting. (laughs) <laughs> do you do you miss that and do you, you kind of wish like i wish i would have been around to cover that that level of of i'm not going to say hatred because i don't know that that's the right word but the certain level of just discontent toward each other
1: oh uh, i you know I, I think we're all really torn about that because yeah. If you're, if you're writing, you know, part of what makes writing fun is the tension and drama and friction and, and agitation. You don't have a lot of that now. And you look back and you yeah, have the idea that exactly like you said, like you know, the Connors and McEnroe would play each other's charity events or, you know, the, the minute Rafa Nadal won the French open that you were talking about a few weeks ago, he ties Roger Federer. This is this, you know, decade and a half long quest to see who's going to be better in their, horse races finally tied 20 majors apiece. And one of the first people to congratulate Nadal is Federer, basically saying, you know, what an honor it is to be competing alongside yeah, you. Yeah, via Twitter. It feels like,
0: yeah,
1: exactly. <laughs> well, <laughs> and so,
0: <laughs> and in, the, in the ceremony, Nadal apologizes to Djokovic saying, hey, I'm kind of sorry, but you whipped me a couple of years ago in Australia. <laughs> exactly. And then, I don't know, about five exactly. or six, seven years ago, when Nadal wiped out Federer, like six-one, six-two, six-love in Paris he's like hey Roger I'm very sorry about the final I mean could you imagine Jimmy Connors saying after the 82 Wimbledon hey John I'm very sorry about (laughs) beating you in five sets for the Wimbledon you know you're a really good player Uh, that wasn't going to happen
1: so uh so if you're if you're in my shoes or if you're
0: you know if you're if
1: you're a fan in general do do we like that or do we secretly say boy it would be a little more theater here if these guys hated each other and a few guys they didn't even hate each other. There were a, a little bit more friction in the air. Um, I, I think all three of these guys are just good dudes. I think at some level they recognize it's really special. I also think that they all have made this kind of performance decision that says I'm going to be a better athlete when I just worry about playing and I just worry about the ball and I don't want to get in a Twitter war and I don't want to have this bitter rivalry. And I don't want everything I say about this guy to go through the social media spanking machine. I mean, some players really, you know, we we're talking about Jordan before, or certainly McEnroe. Some players really need conflict. And I think these three guys have kind of made up their minds that conflict is just going to be a distraction. And. I you know I, I think Federer and Nadal genuinely like each other, but I also think they both have arrived at this conclusion that it's not going to help them win to dislike the other guy. You, yeah, it's ironic. You actually see that in, in mixed martial arts as well. Some fighters really want to have beef with the other guy, and they try to get in their head at the weigh-in, or they troll them on social media before the fight. And other fighters say, like, no, 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 I don't want that in my head on fight night. I just want to do this as a, as a physical exercise. I don't need that other dimension. I don't want to hate my opponent. Um, these three guys certainly, you know, have, have, it's, it's hard too because as a fan we've said the same thing about in tennis because of, uh, you know, with, with line calls. And it's great that we have accuracy. We have replay now in, in tennis on line calls. And so what it means is that you have a lot more accuracy. You don't have matches that are left to these judgment calls You don't have these times where, oh, replay show, the ball was out. But what it also has done is it's taken a lot of the arguments. You think about tennis and you think about McEnroe. People can still quote 30, 40 years ago. People (laughs) still remember some of the lines he had when he was yelling at the the chairs and the pits of the world and you can't be serious. And so people sort of – you feel a little guilty saying it. But there are people that say, man, I kind of miss the old days when yeah, the players may get bum calls, but at least we got to see this real agitation. We got to see all this conflict. And I feel a little bit about this, the same way talking about Federer, Nadal, and Djokovic, that on the one hand, it's lovely how sporting and what good sports they are and, and how much you know respect and camaraderie they have. But yeah, every once in a while, it would be fun if they had a little more of the Connors-McEnroe thing going.
0: Well, and when Connors and McEnroe and Elina Stasi were at their prime, people were saying, oh, I wish it was like it was when it was Stan Smith and John Aukum <laughs> exactly. and, and exactly. Ken Rosewall and Rod Laver. Why can't we go back to that? Let me ask you right. one more question about that. And then I want to have a very quick goat conversation because that seems to almost dominate some of the questions you get in your Sports Illustrated column. We're on the Leaders and Legends podcast with Sports Illustrated executive editor, John Wertheim. Watching a uh, special on ESPN, Sports Century, uh, my favorite player from that era is Jimmy Connors. And Mary Carrillo, who I would love to have on the podcast because I think she is the best analyst of any sport. Her comments are always just right on the money, and she seems like a terrific person. She said during one of the Sports Century uh, segments on Jimmy Connors he may not be the best player who ever lived but she was pretty sure he was the most important tennis player who ever lived do you think there's a lot of accuracy in that statement for what he did for the game when he did it um that's an interesting that's an interesting comment
1: I mean I I gotta say I mean I I'm guessing that was made before this era we're in now and also before the Williams sisters correct but I I do you think, you know, I I think one thing we overlook sometimes with McEnroe and Connors is just um, they took tennis to a very different place. And tennis, I think, too too easily gets dismissed as oh, it's this country club sport and it's you know a bunch of dweebs and cable sweaters, and pr- pretty hard to align that with Connors and and McEnroe. And it brought a different sensibility. I mean, you see Connors and he's sweating and he's clutching his fist and he's dating a Playboy model, and that—that that is not the country club like lawn tennis image that you get sometimes in in pop culture. Um, so I, I think Mackinac and Connors both have
0: get enough credit for taking tennis to a uh, to a different audience. And that was um, kind of her but, point. Her her point was her point was he, he brought it out of the country clubs and made everybody watch her, that he made it much more, maybe, maybe perhaps as Arnold Palmer did for golf, kind of an every man, you know, he was taught by his mother, taught by his grandmother, you know, came up in tough circumstances. And he just tennis before to me, cause I agree with her. There's before Connors and after Connors in terms of the public perception and interest and, in, Tennis and how much more egalitarian it got after Jimmy became a world champion.
1: Right. Um, you know, I mean, I, I would uh, Mary is a, a a dear friend and uh, and, and a colleague. I, I'm curious when she made that comment because I think if that's if that was her point, I would say yes, absolutely. But I would say two African American sisters from Compton who. Played into their forties, and um, you know, won almost thirty majors between them. Probably went even
0: further than Connors did in terms of uh, distancing tennis from this from this country club image. Great point. And, and to, in her defense, I don't remember the exact year, but I think it was like in the 90s because his Connors run in the 91 U.S. Open is a part of the sports century on ESPN. But I mean, uh, the, the, okay. the documentary yeah. itself has got to be 20, 25 years old. Let's okay. let's talk goat. And I want to kind of focus on uh, the women's side of the tour. Uh, it, it's it's by that I mean, greatest of all time comes up in in tennis discussions it seems to be more than any other sport who's the goat maybe NFL quarterback and and uh, NBA but that's a different discussion because you're talking team sport is it is just using the one term grazed of all time is that a disservice because clearly you could look at it in different ways who's the most accomplished of all time which I think is Martina Navratilova. How many how many Grand Slam trophies mm-hmm. does she have? Fifty something.
1: Exactly. It's right. unreal. Over twenty five years. Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
0: Who's the most Who's the most talented of all time? Which I would say is, you know, who would you choose to play for your life if you could choose anyone? Do I think Dan Marino is the greatest quarterback of all time? Accomplished? Well, of course not. But if I had to choose one quarterback to make one throw to save my kid's life i choose Dan Marino. And then the third is greatest because couldn't you make an argument in a lot of ways that Billie Jean King is the greatest female tennis player of all time for what she did for the sport and, and for her causes. So it's just the one goat question. Is that, is that too general? And is there a need to break it down based on these other kind of subcategories? Um, Damn, that's a good question.
1: I mean, I think it's, I, I think part of what makes it a, a lively discussion is how ill-defined it is. I mean, I think people like the lack of a definition. So what's an important criteria for person A? So, well, you know, Billie Jean King was a social pioneer. If you want a few fewer major titles, well, who cares in the grand scheme of things? Right. And other people would value longevity, and other people would value you know, singles versus doubles. I mean, I think the fact that um, you have all these factors. And yeah, I mean, the NFL quarterback example, I think, is pretty good. I mean, nobody's basing this just on Super Bowls one. So for somebody, it's, you know, how, how much do you discount that they played with a, you know, a coach that only let them throw the ball 25 times a game? And how much do you account for, defense on the other side of the ball that would have i mean there there are all sorts of these factors that we haven't really
0: there's there's no or johnny unitas who who became yeah exactly the court the first superstar quarterback of the tv era and without tv then the nfl is not is clearly not the nfl but he was the first big time champion quarterback with his flat top as TV took off in the post World War II era. So, is he the best? Is he the most accomplished? No. But could you make an argument that without Johnny Unitas' skill and prowess, that things would have been different for the NFL on television?
1: Exactly. How, how much? Uh, I'll, I'll give you one in tennis, which is how much do we account for money? And, you well, know, Roger Federer has a whole team, and if his back's feeling a little you know, his back's feeling a little tweaky. He gets a back specialist and he's, you know, he's, he's not going to the Indianapolis airport. You know, he's, he's not flying commercially and he's got a whole staff. Well, you know, Mar- Martina Navratilova tells these stories about, you know, she, she'd get delayed at O'Hare on her way to some of her biggest titles. How much do we account for that? So, I mean, you know, part, part of the fun of this is that there's no set criteria. And we, some of this is, we're never going to get a satisfactory answer ever comparing eras, right? I mean, just Jordan versus LeBron and, Mm -hmm. you know, bird versus, you know, so how how much do we uh, pad the eras? And on the one hand, they didn't necessarily jump as high or run as fast, but they also didn't have the equipment. Um, I I think it's almost sort of, it's more about the, the judger than the judgee. It's, it's almost about as much about you and what you value and what your sort of priorities are and what you want to stress than it is about the, uh, than it is about the player. But no t- tennis fans are absolutely obsessed with this discussion on, on the men's and the women's side. And we're never of course going to resolve this thing. But I think that what makes it fun, but also frustrating is that we haven't even decided on the ground rules yet. I and mean, we haven't even like decided what the rules of engagement are. And
0: uh yeah, exactly what you said. It's uh it's you know so, so so if John Wertheim, tennis writer extraordinaire, has to choose one female player to be his champion in one match, who would you choose? If you had the first overall draft pick in the history of female tennis to create a super team, who would you choose?
1: So if, if I were being lame and argumentative, I'd say, <laughs> what's the surface? What, what are we playing? What, what's under my feet? Hardcore. No, I don't know. I, I would, I think, I mean, to me, Serena, Serena Williams is pretty much uh check, check more boxes than anyone.
0: You don't, and you, you don't know how often. I've started to type that question to you for your mailbag on sportsillustrated.si.com and haven't done it. So the fact that I can actually no. ask it to you as a, human <laughs> group, and I agree with you, I think Serena so. at her best is the best is the most talented female player of all time. As I would say, Federer, when yeah. Federer was rocking and rolling 10 or so years ago, I think he's the, the, the best. He would be my first round draft pick if I had to choose on the men's side. If you had to choose on the mid side, would you hit Roger as well? Yeah, I think. Well, you said hard course, which makes it even. No, I. I mean,
1: I, the bed's getting a little tight, and we'll see what happens. And you know, I mean, Djokovic has a winning head-to-head record against Federer and Nadal, and he's the youngest of the three. He's. he's but no, I. I think right now, as of today, I. I'd say Serena and Federer, um, and I think you're right. I think some of it is just what you said before about one one point to play with my life on the line that's probably the guy I'd want and um Serena, I just think is unbelievable i mean serene Serena won the u s open in nineteen ninety nine when when Bill Clinton was president and in the last months of the trump presidency. We were talking about her as a favorite and she got to the semifinals. I mean, Serena's just the she's won more majors than anyone except for, for Margaret Court, which we don't really count. She's won doubles. She but the longevity on Serena's just this is this is twenty plus
0: years at the top, which is just just amazing. And that seems to be the real differentiator as you were saying earlier in eras. I mean we made a huge and deservedly so right because he was out of tennis the year before but Jimmy Connor's run, which is a great 30 for 30 if you've never seen it uh, the, a, a wonderful documentary on his run in 1991 in which John Wertheim uh, plays a part uh, on the, in the documentary. A phenomenal run, and it was everything that Connors wanted about sports. He probably he he won probably the greatest point in tennis history against Paul Harhus and eventually was kind of uh, was defeated by Jim Courier. But you mentioned Federer, thirty nine or whatever. If he doesn't make the semifinals of majors, that's the story. Not some miraculous run. It's it's seen exactly. as what's wrong with exactly. Roger Federer. We have that's a great. That's a great way to put it. That's great.
1: Yeah.
0: We've reached the point of the Leaders and Legends podcast where every guest gets asked the same five questions. We're on with John Wertheim, Executive Editor of Sports Illustrated. John, are you ready?
1: Sure. I don't know what I'm jumping into, but yeah.
0: (laughs) What was your first
1: job? Oh, man. Uh, My first job, my first summer job was scraping poison ivy off of... (laughs) Dormitories on the IU campus. Um, my first uh, non outdoor job, non uh, dermatologically uh, risky job was um, I worked for the Portland Trailblazers fan magazine Rip City right out of college for uh, $11 an hour and, and one of the great years of my life.
0: They were pretty damn good at that time. They were I'm damn good, that. exactly. That's right. Number two, what was your first concert?
1: Oh man. Um, I think before I saw Camp, I saw Billy Idol in the cult at Market Square
0: arena on a festival tickets and nearly risked my life uh, doing so. We do like Billy Idol here on the leaders and legends podcast. <laughs> That's a great concert. And number three, if you could recommend any book for someone to read, which book would you suggest? Oh man. Any book? Any? Give, give me more sports. Sports fans? Just any anything? Any anything? If you want to recommend Strokes of Genius, Federer, Nadal, and the greatest match ever played, <laughs> which is written by John Wertheim, then go right ahead.
1: Yeah, oh, man, I would never uh, be so. That wouldn't be very Indiana to plug my own work. <laughs> I, I would say anything by. Uh, I would say anything by John McPhee who's written about everything from, from tennis to the principal of his high school to truck driving, who uh, is just a really elegant writer who reports so deeply. You feel like you're an expert on the topic when you get to the end of the book. John, John McPhee of a uh, great American treasure.
0: Did you read season on the brink when it came out? Oh yeah. No, it's funny. I actually was talking to uh yeah, I
1: did. I, yeah, I was, um, I mean, again, I I think John Fine. We we joke about this. He has no recollection of it. I think he drove me home from middle school once because Pat Knight and I lived near each other, and something <laughs> happened with the coach Knight, and then John Feinstein came and got us as a favor to coach. But uh, I, I mean, I knew he was in town reporting, and then as soon as the book came out and was available, I uh, you know ran and read it cover to cover. Sure.
0: Number four. If you could witness any event in history, be there in person as it happens, which event would you choose? Oh man, um, I think I would
1: say maybe maybe the 27 Yankees, just because there was so from from Lindbergh to uh, the the looming depression, just there was so much else going on at the same time. But um, I, I'd say the 1927 New York Yankees.
0: Last question. If you could have dinner with anyone living today, two hours off the record just to chat, whom would you choose?
1: Oh man. Uh, that's a great question that I should have a better prepared answer for. Um well, you, you've had dinner with a bunch of
0: I amazing love, people.
1: Oh uh, I mean truth truth here. I mean I, I would I I would love to talk to I'm tempted to say Donald Trump, just to get a sense of how much of this is, I still have not resolved myself to how much of this is calculated and how much of this he genuinely believes. I mean, is this, is this sort of genius or evil genius? How, how much he really believes and how much of this is just leftover reality TV strategy? Um, I would say, i put John Roberts pretty high up there as well, our Chief Supreme Court Justice. Um and then and then just for kicks, uh you know, maybe maybe Axl Rose.
0: <laughs> Think there's more in common between Donald Trump and Axl Rose than <laughs> between John Roberts and Donald <laughs> Trump?
1: Yeah, you know, the the old John Roberts, Axl Rose, uh, you know, it's 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 there are pros and cons for each.
0: You have been listening to the Leaders and Legends podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, the Crown Plaza Hotel, Grand Hall, and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the law firm of Bose McKinney, and Evans, and the Bowes Public Affairs Group, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Our guest today has been John Wertheim, executive editor of Sports Illustrated and a Hoosier born and bred. John, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. It was a real treat.
1: Oh, likewise. That was good fun. Thanks for uh, for having me.
0: Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com.